Hello, this is Nara Montero, a director at Iconoclast Collective and the host of Iconocast. I'm here speaking to Dr. Cal Gervais, uh, Associate Professor and Graduate Chair of Classics here at Western. A few of his areas of interest are classical Latin, epic and lyric, late antique and medieval Latin literature, violence in the ancient world, in particular Thebaid, as well as digital humanities and classical reception in comic books. He taught me classics and pop culture, one of my favorite courses in my four years here at Western. Thank you for being here, Dr. Gervais. You're welcome. You introduced me much better than I did. <laughs> no, it's a it's great. Um, just a kind of general question uh, right away, maybe looking quite a bit back. What brought you to classics in the first place? Uh, that is a good question. This is my own personal story. I grew up watching a lot of Star Trek and thinking that I wanted to design spaceships. And then I decided that's not what I wanted to do. And I went to university with a science degree. And I remember being in high school and thinking, what am I going to do after I graduate? And there was a, a poster on the wall with literally different careers and how much money you made in them. And right near the top was dentist. And I said, well, I'll be a dentist then. So I went to school sort of in biology thinking I would do that. Uh, I decided I don't actually like teeth. I thought I would then become a doctor. I decided I don't like hospitals. And then it went from there to evolutionary biology and then uh, environmental biology. But in my first year, just sort of for fun, I took a first year Latin course uh, and loved it. So took a second year Latin course in my second year. And by my fourth year, I had been sort of taking Latin all the way through. And I realized I was talking about Latin the way people in my biology lab were talking about biology, and I thought this must be the thing for me. So for me, it was always the language that the Romans spoke, and from there, sort of a more general interest in the culture uh, grew. So I did an MA uh, at Queen's and then went to New Zealand for my PhD and have sort of never looked back. Awesome. So in our classics and pop culture class, one of the things that you talked about a lot that struck me was the, like, imagery of the Roman parade and how I didn't really realize how pervasive it was. We looked at it specifically in the Hunger Games and in some of the political um, rallies that we're seeing now. I was wondering, do you think its power comes from its long history or do you think it's a function of some of the intrinsic structures that happen in these gatherings? That's an interesting question. So I guess for context, um, in the Roman Republic, so before it turned into a one-man rule with emperors like Augustus, Nero, and those people. So in the Roman Republic, a general, after winning a military victory, could celebrate a triumph, which was essentially a long parade with uh, soldiers and chariots and the spoils of war and things like posters um, showing the names of the, the countries that they had conquered. So it would sort of teach the Romans about the world. And they could hold a parade through Rome. And then under the emperor, uh, under the empire, sorry, the, the emperor himself kind of was the only one who was able to do that. So I think that's what you're talking about. I think its pervasiveness in the modern world is probably linked to how it was introduced to the modern world. So in the lead up to World War II and then during World War II, uh, the Italian fascist government looked back to ancient Rome as sort of a model. They were trying to argue that they were sort of making Italy great again. They were sort of bringing back the glory that was Rome. And so they would look back to these Roman models. And especially in some of the propaganda films that they made at the time, they looked back to that idea of uh, Roman triumph as this sort of symbol of the military power of the ruler and the riches that he brings back home to benefit uh, his homeland. And so I think some of those films, first with the fascists in Italy and then with the Nazis in Germany who learned a lot about propaganda from the fascists, were really influential in later cinema um, and not even in propaganda cinema. So there was a filmmaker in Germany named Leni Riefenstahl 
uh, although she was uh, making films in the service of Nazi propaganda, had sort of innovated and mastered a lot of filmic techniques. And later filmmakers, despite the problematic nature of what she was uh, filming, um, were heavily influenced by that, even down to the first Star Wars movie at the end. After they uh, destroyed the Death Star, there's that parade where they all get the medals. And that whole layout with the crowds of people on two sides and this aisle down the middle and then the people at the front, that's taken almost directly from Riefenstahl's most famous film called The Triumph of the Will. So I think the image itself has some sort of intrinsic power because it's this sort of visual demonstration of the power of those in charge and the benefits they bring to their country. But I think the particular way it's shown these days is can be traced pretty directly through film back to uh, 1930s German cinema. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring up that connection. We were talking a little bit about how, yes, stories can influence our lives, and that I think on a general level sounds like a very positive thing, but it can become very manipulative in the case of propaganda um, and using that imagery to make people emotional. Um, So that is certainly an image that I think has been abused. I have a story about that that you... uh if, I'm, okay. if that's okay. Uh, and this was another one from class, I think. I think, for me, the perfect example of this imagery and these stories being used for bad purposes is with the rise of the alt-right in the States and especially on college campuses. There's a particular group called Identity Europa, and they did an advertising campaign a few years ago where they had posters with classical statues and uh, slogans like let's become great again and reclaim our heritage. And they were sort of uh, usurping the symbolic power of classical statuary to try to make this argument that white people in America were the cultural descendants of the glory that is Western civilization all the way back to Greece and Rome. And, you know, there's nothing inherently bad or dangerous about white marble statues but they have been used uh, throughout history including by the nazis and it seems to always come back to the nazis but right up to the modern day as tools to advance racist agendas so that is one that i kind of keep coming back to as things keep happening down south yeah for sure that actually connects to something i was wondering some people will say that for better or for worse roman and greek classical civilization in particular is the foundation of the modern Western world. That is a very broad and difficult statement, I think, but I was wondering your thoughts on those claims. That's a hard one for a classicist to answer, and especially for a teacher of classics to answer, because so many scholars of classics and so many students in classics courses get interested in it because we do feel those deep connections. You know, we think of the Greeks and Romans as sort of our distant ancestors, and Classics in recent years has been sort of acknowledging that story we tell can often be a damaging story because it excludes the contributions of other cultures. It can be used to justify things like white supremacy or white nationalism. But I think just even from a pragmatic purpose, there's a worry amongst classicists that, well, if we don't study this period because it's the foundation of Western civilization, you know, why do we care about it? What sort of privilege will classics have if it's not sort of the beginning of everything? And so I haven't answered the question yet. I think as I learn more about classics, because I'm still learning, and I think as the field learns more, we've learned to acknowledge and celebrate the fact that the connection between the ancient world and the modern one 
is a lot more complicated and messy than the story we tell. So something I've been learning a lot about recently is the contribution of Muslim scholars, um, this neat contribution that they had to reintroduce Greek philosophy into Western Europe during the Middle Ages. And so contribution of other groups. And I think we've been learning that making the story more complex doesn't make it less interesting, doesn't make people want to care about the classics any more than they used to. At least in the Western world, we'll never sort of escape this feeling that there's something special about the Greeks and Romans, because there is. But I think it's important to realize that that story can very easily turn into a story that can be damaging or exclusionary or things like that. For sure. Um, to go back a little bit to your work with the Thebaid, right. in Tidius the Hero, you spend some time discussing the porous boundary between heroism and monstrosity. Right. The examples you use are very specific to the Thebaid, yeah. but I found it very compelling as an idea that kind of these things were two sides of the same coin. Sure. I was wondering if you would want to go over it a little bit, keeping in mind that many listeners haven't read the Thebaid. Sure. Yeah. Many classicists have not read the Thebaid yet. I'm, part of my job is to try to remind people that it's actually a great poem and worth reading. So the Thebaid tells the story of uh, a particular moment in the city of Thebes. So if you know anything about classical mythology, you'll probably know things about Troy, uh, Helen of Troy and the thousand ships that came to take her back. And there's a bunch of legends connected to Troy, but there's another bunch of legend from the ancient world connected to Thebes, which is this disastrous city where in every generation, brothers kill brothers, sons sleep with mothers, or people eat each other. It, it's sort of the place the ancients kept going to in their thoughts when they think of a city that doesn't work at all. And so the Thebaid tells a particular moment in that when the two sons of Oedipus, um, who some listeners might know, he's the guy that accidentally killed his father and slept with his mother, uh, the two sons of Oedipus uh, fight to the death of their father's throne. And there's a particular moment in it, uh, you referenced a guy named Tidius. He's one of the heroes who is sort of the best hero amongst the Greeks, and he has this glorious battle where he kills everyone that tries to attack him, and he's uh, just about to get his eternal reward where the goddess Athena comes down and is, is going to bring him up to heaven to sort of be a god forever. And then he goes crazy and ends up eating the brains of the guy who had mortally wounded him. So that's all the context. Um, and one of the sort of phenomena that I focus on there is that in the ancient world, a hero is not the same for the ancients as it is for moderns. So in the modern Western world, a hero is someone who does good things, impressive good things. A hero in the ancient world is someone who does big things. They don't necessarily have to be good. They don't necessarily have to be bad. They're just memorable. So Hercules is the archetypal hero for the Greeks, and he does wonderful things like kill monsters to help civilize the world and he also does horrible things like go crazy and kill his family so i guess what i talk about is a hero is someone who's far away from the everyday life and you can get far away from everyday life by getting closer to the gods and by getting closer to a monster and by this sort of circular logic that the ancients had the closer you get to the gods the closer you risk getting to being a monster and the death of Tidius eating the brains of his enemy is sort of the perfect ancient example of that. He's just on the cusp of becoming literally a god, and then he ends up dying as the worst kind of monster because cannibalism was this, this horrible thing in the ancient world that they were eternally terrified of happening. Um, so that's 
that's kind of the gist of, of that story. Yeah. One of the other things that struck me and came up a little bit just now is the gods kind of coming down frequently and talking to characters in a lot of these stories. I feel like there's a sense, even in science fiction and fantasy, which is stuff that we talked a bit about in class as well, that doing that is a little heavy-handed in today's world. I was wondering if you think there's a place for that kind of explicit interaction with the divine in storytelling today still. Okay, I'm going to take this in a different direction than you've asked, but but I'll start by answering your question. Um, yeah, you're right. So my favorite example of that is the movie Troy. Troy is based on the Iliad, which is one of the foundational texts of Western literature. Uh, it tells the story of Troy and the gods. Yeah, uh, Zeus and Hera and all these gods are constantly coming down to interfere directly in the lives of mortals. And uh, in the movie Troy, if you've seen it, they pretty much bring the gods completely out of it, with the exception of Achilles' mother, Thetis. They sort of don't make it really explicit that she's a goddess. There's obviously something not quite normal about her, but they don't become heavy-handed and say, yeah, you know, this is a god on Earth. So the direction I'm going to take it in is another... I think I'm just giving you the greatest hits of the pop culture course, but I've thought a lot about some of these things. One of the movies we talk about in that course is The Hunger Games. And The Hunger Games tells a modern myth about Rome that had been told in Western literature and cinema since sort of the early 1900s, which is that Rome was this decadent society on the verge of collapse underneath its own greed and cruelty. And at that moment of collapse, this new force comes to rejuvenate the Roman world. In old movies from the 50s, like Quo Vadis, The Robe, and Spartacus, and right up to the movie Gladiator, that rejuvenating force is Christianity. Even in Gladiator, you sort of don't necessarily notice it until you start thinking about it. Um, if you've seen Gladiator, uh, not to spoil the ending, but Maximus dies at the end, the hero, he sort of leaves the mortal world to, to see his family that's been killed. And the place he goes with this lovely waving fields of wheat, and it's all very ethereal and heavenly. And I think it's basically supposed to be the Christian heaven without saying it's the Christian heaven. So baked into this story of a decadent empire about to collapse with rejuvenating forces is Christianity. Now, the problem to, I think, now finally answer your question, is there a place for the divine in this sort of storytelling? For the Hunger Games, the answer is no. So they tell that same story. Panem is on the verge of collapse. There's this rebellion under Katniss and uh, this attempt at sort of renewal to get something better. Uh, but the one thing that's missing from the story, I think because the author just felt that this is not sort of relevant to the world I'm in anymore, is that rejuvenating forces in Christianity. What it ends up being, and I think it's quite interesting, is Katniss sort of learns about the world and she learns about the broader patterns of history. The bit at the end after she's taken down Snow and uh, the promise of District 13 has sort of been shown to not actually work out. When she's talking to Plutarch, Plutarch Evansby, he's the one. And he sort of says, yeah, you know, things are fine now and we're peaceful now, but humans are sort of greedy and warlike and soon enough we'll go back into a bad place. But, you know, maybe this time it'll stick. Maybe this is the time when we'll finally learn from our mistakes. And so I think the renewal at the end or the answer to the question of what do you do when you live in a society on the verge of collapse is not Christianity, because I think for the author, 
that's just too simplistic these days or it just doesn't work uh, and the answer is well you learn as much as you can about the world and history and the patterns of history because it's a young adult novel and young adult novels are usually about growing up and so she just kind of grows up so for that particular text i don't think there's a place for the divine for lots of others there probably is for conservatives in america right now there is for sure. I mean, the Make America Great Again that Donald Trump is doing is heavily inflected with Christianity. So, you know, take that for whatever it is. Yeah. Um, thinking a little bit again about kind of the classics in The Hunger Games, but not necessarily specifically in The Hunger Games, the class that I was in with you touched a lot on science fiction, fantasy, and comics. Um, I know some of that is your personal research interest, but it did feel like a rare and much needed chance to apply all of the kind of literary theory that I'm learning in relation to, if you can call it, highbrow literature to as interesting but often ignored genres. And I was wondering if you have thoughts on why certain stories or, or ways of telling stories are so consistently prioritized over others? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think some of it can be traced right back to the classical world. The Greeks and then the Romans had a real sense that certain genres were more important than other genres. So right at the top of their hierarchy of genres were tragedy and epic, like the Iliad or the Thebaid that we were talking about before. And then lower genres were things like uh, love poetry or um, comedy. So within Western literature, there's been sort of this idea of a hierarchy of genres for a while. I think we're still influenced by that. I mean, comedies aren't likely to win Best Picture awards very often because comedy is a low genre. I think there is something legitimate about valuing a certain text, and by a text I mean uh, something you write or a movie or a comic or anything, when it's complex. I, I think there's kind of two different strategies that someone has to take when they're approaching a text, and one works really well when a text is complex, and you can kind of just keep poking at it and digging and finding new things over and over and over. And as much as I love, like, Spider-Man comics, you can't poke it very far before there's nothing left to find. But then what you can do instead is apply these other strategies where you say, okay, maybe this particular Spider-Man comic is not really complex. Maybe I can't dig a bunch out of it. But what's going on in the world that influences that comic? And what does the story told in that comic tell us about the bigger stories that we tell and that we value? So I think that's why one of the things I wanted to do with this course is as much as possible avoid highbrow stuff, even though it can make it sometimes hard to be like, well, what do I even say about this 16-page comic book? But then it forces you to think bigger and think especially, uh, to go back to the theme of all this, to think about the myths and the stories that we tell and, you know, the connections between the big stories out there in the world and this little story that, that gets told in this comic book. I'm not sure I quite answered your no, question. No, that was but great. Um, another question on kind of the big level as well. We've talked a lot about how classical literature trickles into the media that we create and watch today. Do you think of it as more of a, again, a trickle down from history? This is a part of, of the narratives that we've been telling for thousands of years, or do you see it more in kind of the Joseph Campbell archetypically oriented kind of universalizing, this is just a part of human nature perspective? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so for context, one of the things, and we even talk about it a little bit in the course, is there was a mythographer named Joseph Campbell in the middle of the last century, and he identified this hero's journey, which is this pattern that so many stories follow, 
whereby there's sort of a person in the ordinary world and then they leave the ordinary world for some sort of fantastic adventure and then they ultimately come back with some sort of benefit for the society that they left. Uh, and he sees that story reflected in cultures all across the world. And so the take-home message for him was that story tells us something about human psychology and about you know the way our brains are wired and the things that we think are important or the way we understand the world. The bit of complexity to add to that is that hero's journey is everywhere in modern pop culture. I don't think because of its intrinsic value, but because it heavily influenced George Lucas in Star Wars. Uh, he had sort of read the hero's journey shortly before he made Star Wars, and then he modeled it very consciously off of the hero's journey so that Luke leaves the ordinary world of Tatooine to go on these fantastic adventures, then eventually there's sort of this happy ending. And Star Wars was super successful, so we should just copy that pattern. Um, and so you can find, if you Google Hero's Journey, writer's manuals for writing Hollywood scripts that say, you know, model your stories on this. Um, in another hundred years, once the memory of Star Wars has faded, whether we'll think that that's such a foundational story, um, I don't know. So I think there's certainly something to be said for the idea that we are all human uh, and we are no matter where we're from. And so certain things are, I think, always going to interest us. But then there's these culturally specific things that happen, even down to a really specific level of the success of one movie. And you can trace, I think, what seems like the inevitability of that story pattern as much back to Star Wars as you can to anything fundamental about the story. So um, the answer is kind of yes and no. Excellent. Thank you. Um, is there anything else you wanted to touch on that we didn't bring up? Um, good question. Let me think for a second. Oh, um, can I tell one little story about something I'm starting to work on now? Yeah. So I find myself um, going more and more into the Middle Ages because, as I said, I got into classics through Latin. And Latin, at least in Western Europe, continued to be the language of learning right up until about a couple hundred years ago. So if you were going to write anything quote-unquote important, you'd put it into Latin. Um, and I've gotten particularly interested in some stuff that was going on in the 13th century, mostly in France, which is where they had rediscovered a lot of um, Greek philosophy. And I mentioned earlier, some of that came through Muslim influences. Um, and they had sort of had this renaissance in their understanding of the ancient world. And it was one of those moments in history when they felt a really close connection to the ancient world again. And one text they felt a really close connection to is a poem by another Roman called Ovid, uh, The Metamorphoses, which some people might know. And it sort of tells a couple hundred uh, Greek or Roman myths in quick succession. And for people from the 13th century, they understood how valuable this text was because it was, it was one of the most complete tellings of Greek and Roman mythology. And it was obviously very learned and full of all sorts of information. But the problem they had with it is that most stories of Greek and Roman mythology are kind of horrible and they're definitely not Christian. And people were Christian at the time. So they had to figure out what do we do with these stories. And the really interesting thing they did is they decided to aggressively interpret most of these stories as allegories. Um, so, you know, Ovid is talking about this particular god sleeping with his particular mortal, but what he's really talking about is usually a Christian moral. And one of the things I'm really enjoying about this is some of these allegories are just completely unexpected. So one I've been working on lately is, and it's part of the story of Thebes, a king named Pentheus uh, doesn't worship Bacchus the way that Bacchus would want him to. 
and as a punishment the king ends up being torn apart by a bunch of his family members at this religious festival and for the ancients that would have been a story about how you should respect the gods and for these 13th century christians what they end up saying is well pentheus is actually a allegory for the wise man and each of the women who tear him apart are an allegory for a particular part of your brain because they had an understanding about the about the brain that the brain was divided into three different compartments one was for rational thought one was for memory one was for something else and so they would say this woman agave actually symbolizes this section of the brain and this woman symbolizes this section and so these sections tear up or divide the wise man in the same way that these women literally tore up Pentheus. And it's just such a stretch, but it was a very serious effort to make what was clearly very important and learned material fit into a, a contemporary understanding of the world, especially a Christian context. And so this story ended up being a scientific story about what we know about the human brain. And so it's, it's a neat example, I think, of how much we can distort the ancient world and use it for our own purposes. Um, so anyway, that's something I'm working on right now. That's very interesting. Actually, I have a friend who wrote an essay comparing, I forget which of them, but I think two of the stories from the metamorphosis to the modern conception of a waifu. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but it's in like Western obsession with certain Japanese cultures, like communities that are big fans of anime, um, they have this idea, which is basically like a perfect wife. Uh, oh, the statue where like the statue turns into oh uh, Pygmalion. Yes, Pygmalion. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how like she's only perfect while she's a statue, while she's not real, yeah. and kind of the conception of like this person can only be perfect because they're not real, which is these things never seem to get old enough that we can't connect them to something that's yeah. modern, which is an interesting thing. The yeah. way that we can manipulate these yeah. stories to relate to. Yeah. Things that we still experience. Yeah. I, I stumbled upon one of those list uh, things. It was like, uh, you know, the 11 coolest times that uh, K-pop referenced the ancient world. And the one they were talking about was a song called Blood, Sweat and Tears. I've seen the video. Yeah. It's like quite... Yeah. opulent it's very interesting it's set in in basically a museum with a bunch of classical statues and paintings and they make a bunch of references to icarus a kid who uh, had artificial wings and flew too close to the suns and his wings melted and he died that story has been used uh, in the modern world as a metaphor for you know young people who sort of burn out too early um, and it's neat to see that showing up in non-western contexts because they clearly have the sense that even though this is not sort of quote unquote, their culture, it's still a good way to make a point and tell a story that they want to tell. And so, yeah, that is really interesting. Thank you very much for coming in, Dr. Gervais. It was wonderful uh, to have you and to speak about this topic with you. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.